2006, November 30th. Today is Lecture 45. Is Pluto a planet? We'll begin in just a moment. All right. Well, you know, we've, we've now got Lecture 45 here. So we're one, one more to go. Right, two more to go. We, we haven't done this one yet. Um, we've come through a lot of material in this class. And now it's time to, to take, I always like to leave the last two lectures of the class, to pick up topics that are of emergent interest, that aren't going to show up in your textbook, that may have in fact emerged in the news either during the quarter or maybe in the course of the previous years, things that get talked about. So today I thought I'd pick a nice, non-controversial topic no one cares about. Is Pluto a planet? Um, in fact, is the question of is Pluto a planet seemed to consume a better part of my August this year while the International Astronomical Union meeting was going on over in Prague, Czechoslovakia. I was here in Columbus. I wasn't in Prague. But I was following it on the webcasts and the discussions going on and how you define a planet. And I ended up talking to a lot of people. I talked to people on the radio. I talked to people on the newspapers. I got interviewed in TV over in the geology lab. There was a tremendous amount of public interest in this question. The IU was not actually considering whether Pluto was a planet. That wasn't the question before it. The problem before them was, can we come up with a self-consistent definition of a planet to resolve future disputes as to the nature of particular objects, like how do you name a big object bigger than Pluto? Do we use the planet naming convention or the minor planet naming convention? People realized we needed a definition. And so I've decided to make this lecture here, instead of diving off into the topic of extrasolar planets, which we'll talk about tomorrow, to pick up this question of why is Pluto a planet, but now I get to approach it not from the way I did the summer when I was talking to like the dispatcher, you know. I don't know who the radio company I was talking to was, it sort of skips my mind, but they end up, they sell tapes of interviews, and my, one of my cousins called me up very excited because apparently Howard Stern played the tape in one of his interstitials. Like, oh, you're on Howard Stern. Like, no, I wasn't really, no. Um, but, but it was a huge amount of public interest. But let's approach this question now. Now that you've had 10 weeks of Astronomy 161, you've got all the background, let's see what was really behind these arguments. Is Pluto a planet? So the key ideas today is I actually want to take an historical, semi-historical approach to this, because we've been here, we've been down this road before. The discussions of August 2006 are not new. In fact, they're discussions which have gone on through much of the history of astronomy, at least in the modern period, modern era. So I'll start with the classical and Copernican definitions of what a planet was. You know, where do these definitions that we start with come from? In three millennia of study, we've not really had a self-consistent definition of planets. And so it was time, in many people's minds, to remedy that. It was the telescopic discoveries. Discovery of Uranus, prediction discovery of Neptune, discovery of the asteroids, that really began to change the nature of the debate, to ask the question, what really does constitute a planet? And these discussions all went on basically in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries and reached some kind of resolution until the 20th century with the discovery of the trans-Neptunian world. The discovery of Pluto by Clyde Tombaugh in 1930 was the first big change in the solar system in nearly a century. And from then, leading up to 1992 with the discovery of the first Kuiper Belt objects, and then just in the last year or so, the discovery of Eris, which is a body in the trans-Neptunian realm bigger than Pluto, really crystallized this question of, do we have a self-consistent definition of what a planet is? And that will bring us to the final key ideas, discussion of what this definition of a planet is, and why I think it actually, it, even though there are some issues still remaining with the acceptance of it, and there is controversy still, 
I want to show you that actually there is a sound reason behind our redefinition. Astronomers have undertaken in the last couple of years to redefine the nomenclature of the solar system. And we have an obligation to explain that to people. And so what I'm hoping coming out of here today is not only to explain it to you, but maybe you can explain it to other people yourselves in your future. Maybe some of you will be teachers and things like that. Where do we come from? How do we get to this place? Well, let's begin with a little quote. I love quoting Shakespeare, so this is one of the few times when I have. This is a scene from King Lear in Act 1, Scene 5, where Lear and Fool are going back and forth between each other, and Fool says, the reason why the seven stars are no more than seven is a pretty reason. And Lear responds, because they are not eight? I <laughs> indeed, thou wouldst make a good fool. In 1605, when Shakespeare wrote King Lear, and this is the, the quote here is from the first folio edition, the universe that Shakespeare would have known and thought about, and if you look carefully at Shakespeare's writings, he was writing from a perspective of the geocentric Ptolemaic view of the world. In there, a planet was a wandering star. Now, you can argue whether the seven stars he was referring to were the seven sisters of the Pleiades or the seven moving objects of the solar system, the sun and the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn make up the seven stars. Seven was a magic number. But let's say he was talking about the planet. Certainly when Shakespeare made reference to astronomy when he did in a couple of other plays, it was very clear his perspective was that of the time. People viewing the planets as literally five-fold. If you sort of ignore the sun and the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn with the Earth set at the center. And that's the classical definition of a planet. That view by 1605 was five years before Galileo turned the telescope to the sky. It was about the same year or within the same time that Kepler was first publishing his discoveries of the laws of planetary motion. So in the consciousness of the European mind, there were five planets, and the Earth was not one of them. The Earth was at the center of the solar system. It was different. By 1700, a century later, this landscape had changed completely. By the beginning of 1700, the solar system would have looked like this. It consisted of the sun at the center, surrounded by Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Here shown drawn to a scale model, which would have been immediately recognizable to any astronomer, mathematician, or physicist as they became the slowly known, natural philosopher, more generally, of 1700. So within a century of Shakespeare, and the comments about the Copernican system, the Ptolemaic system was gone. It was simply swept away. But it was not swept away because there were obvious, convincing, solid proofs of either the rotation or the revolution of the Earth. Those proofs were still nearly a century and a half in the future of the time of this drawing. What had happened? Well, what had happened is Galileo's telescopic observations had made the Copernican system something that should be taken seriously as a description of nature. In particular, the discovery of the moons of Jupiter and most especially the discovery of the phases of Venus, which were exactly as predicted by the Copernican system, but not by the Ptolemaic system, really convinced scholars that they had to start taking this Copernican idea not as a hypothesis, but as a serious description of nature. But what also changed was the rules changed for the whole discourse. Galileo's problems with the church had many, many origins. But one of the principal origins were different ways of looking at the world. What the theologians of the church were doing when they made their decision that the Copernican system was at best erroneous and possibly a heretical idea, 
was they were arguing from a position they had been arguing from for nearly 16 centuries, that there is an absolute ground truth, that there is an, a certain absolute infallible truths that can be known. When attempting to, to interpret the observations of the world, the observations of the solar system by Galileo, the explanation of Galileo and Copernicus was no better, perhaps, than the explanation of Tycho Brahe. There was no way you could distinguish between them, and therefore there was no infallible proof that one could apply to distinguish one explanation, Earth at the center and a complex machinery moving around you, versus Sun at the center and the Earth being but one planet. You could always come up with a counter-explanation. Well, why can't it be this? And you can never infallibly prove it must be one or the other. That was what Cardinal Bellarmine's position was arguing. Galileo was the beginning of a new argument, saying that we're never going to get to an infallible description. There's always going to be some wiggle room. But what we can at least do is present a coherent, self-consistent description of the world. That description can be done mathematically and in terms of physical principles. We never get a perfect description, but if it holds together as a self-consistent, coherent picture, that is enough to make progress. It's a very radical way of thinking. By 1700, Newton had provided the framework by which you could develop such a system. The Newtonian description of the world had predictive power. It could correctly describe the motions of all the planets. And using the same rules, one could so while the fall of a moon around the earth was the same as the fall of an apple from a tree upon the surface of the earth. They simply were different manifestations of the same rules. This is why a century and a half before one had the actual physical proof of the rotation and revolution of the earth, no one doubted this view of the solar system. But it still remained, what was a planet? Well now, in this system, there are six planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Was that really all there was to the solar system, or was there more to be seen? And the principal question was asked by way of the telescope. Now, because people began to see it, the idea of a self-consistent, coherent picture of the world that was describable mathematically, many people went and ran off in various directions looking for patterns. You were looking for laws that describe the universe, and you wanted to have ways of enunciating those laws. One of these exercises occurred in the year 1766 when a man named Johann Daniel Titius showed that the planets appeared to follow a simple numerical progression outwards from the sun. That Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars were not in any particular orbit, but he could write down a very simple formula which predicted where they should be and also showed that Jupiter and Saturn fit in that same predict progression. It was a geometric-ish, retro, you know, it's a very complicated looking little formula to write down. I'm not going to bother to write it down because it's, I'm not interested in the formula itself, but the idea that it sparked. Now, Titius proposed this in 1766, but a man named Johann Ellert Bode, who was the director of the Berlin Observatory, published the law under his own name in 1772 without proper attribution back to Titius. This little subterfuge was eventually rediscovered, and so we now know it not as Bode's Law, but as the Titius Bode Law. Again, I'm not going to write it down, but one of the things that got people taking it seriously or not was that while it did do a pretty good job of giving the progression of the planets outward from the sun, there were some arguments and discontents. One was that there was no physics behind it at all. There was no Newtonian physics. There was no first principles that it arose from. It was simply a numerological game wrapped up in complex mathematical language. Second, it really missed the orbit of Saturn by a half an astronomical unit. But Tisha's Bode Law predicted 10 astronomical units. The real radius was 9.5. So 
yeah, okay, we'll spot you that, but in fact the observations of 1772 were sufficient to tell that it didn't work. But the big reason people weren't sure if they wanted to take it seriously is that the progression didn't jump from Mars to Jupiter. There was a missing spot at 2.8 astronomical units where there was no planet. And so people said, well, here's a demonstrable failure of the Titius bode law and decided to dis discountenance it. Other people, among them Johann Ellert Bode, thought very strongly that they discovered an underlying mathematical law of nature and actually began to think about searching for this missing planet between 2.8 astronomical units. The basis wasn't that great, but the idea had gotten planted in people's head that maybe there was something in the gap between the gap now between Mars and Jupiter. But what really got people crystallized into thinking that maybe they should take this seriously was a few, about a decade later, William Herschel, who was actually a German. He was from Hanover, Germany. He, um, he joined, uh, he was a musician in a military band in order to get out of some of the wars going on in Germany. He attached himself to the Hanovers who were related to the kings of England who, when there was no heir to the British throne, came over and took over the British throne, the house of Hanover, George I Hanover. Um, it was at the time of George III that Herschel came over from Germany to England. He was a, a musician by trade. And he was also an amateur astronomer. He built himself a telescope. And from his backyard in his little town in Bath, England, he began a systematic study of the sky. He built a star, ca uh, a star catalog. He searched for comets and nebulae. In fact, he found a number of comets. And on one night, on 13th of March, 1781, he came across an object that at first he thought was a comet. But as he began to watch it night after night, he began to see, in fact, that it was not fuzzy like a comet. It was moving on an orbit which was more precisely a circular arc far away, rather than the long elliptical orbit to which comets are, are well known, as we saw yesterday. And he realized very quickly that he was not looking at a comet. He was looking at a brand new planet, a planet that orbited beyond the orbit of Saturn. He wanted to call it the Georgius Sidus, the Georgian star, sucking up to King George III of England. Uh, the French, absolutely refusing to invoke the name of George III, called the planet Herschel for a while, but calmer heads prevailed and it got named after the Greek god Uranus. Uranus was the first new planet. It was discovered, not really accident, it was accidentally, really the word is serendipitously. It was discovered in a systematic study of the sky, but it caught the attention of the, of the world. Here was a new, new, uh, new planet discovered with this instrument, the telescope, but what really caught some people's attention is it also fit the progression of the Titius Bode law. If you had projected an additional planet beyond Saturn, the Titius Bode law would have predicted, would predicted in quotes the position of Uranus. This began to get people thinking. Either you took the Titius Bode law seriously and you said, well, maybe there are other planets out there to be discovered. How do we discover them? The starting point might be maybe we should go looking in that gap between Mars and Jupiter. So we have the search for planet X, part one. In the year 1790, an Austrian astronomer by the name Baron Franz Javier von Sach organized a systematic study of the ecliptic plane in the region between Mars and Jupiter. He formed a group he called the Celestial Police, the Himmelspolizei. The Celestial Police was a group of 24 astronomers all over Europe who divided up the ecliptic into 24 15-degree segments and they were going to patrol those regions with their telescopes searching for this missing planet at 2.8 astronomical units as predicted by this mathematical Titius Bode law. It was a wonderful undertaking. It was one of these periods of time where these international scientific 
projects were beginning to emerge as a way to, to leverage the resources of individuals. We didn't have academies of the sciences per se, we didn't have NASA and National Science Foundations per se, but so it was private individuals gathered together by a common interest that did this. Now von Sach actually had a really good program and would have been very, very successful at finding objects in this region of space, but he was scooped. And he was scooped by a rather unlikely man. The man was Giuseppe Piazzi. We've already met Giuseppe. He was a Theatine monk, which is a minor order. He wasn't a priest, but he was, he was basically a member of the minor orders of the Roman Catholic Church. And despite the fact that in traditional Catholic doctrine, the Copernican system was actually still taboo and would remain so for another four decades, um, Piazzi basically, in that wonderful inconsistency of which the church was, the church has its rules and then there's the practical work on the ground. Piazzi was trained as a mathematician and astronomer. He was hired by the King Ferdinand of Sicily to set up an observatory. Ferdinand felt that any kingdom that was, that was worthy of its salt should have in its own observatory. Piazzi was charged with putting that observatory together. The instruments were purchased from the best instrument makers of the day in England, and Piazzi went to England to supervise their construction. Now, he knew nothing about observational astronomy, so he be made friends with and apprenticed himself to William and Carolyn Herschel, the brother and sister astronomical team, William famous as the discoverer of Neptune, and he worked at their observatory and learned the craft of astronomy. He then came back to Palermo, Sicily, set up the observatory. As the southernmost observatory in the European continent, he had access to stars that were below the horizons of many other of the northern European observers, so he began setting about putting together a star chart of the sky as visible from Palermo. And in searching for a missing star in the chart, the star Meyer 87, he tripped across a moving object. As he tracked that moving object, which he first saw on New Year's Day in 1801, and tracked it until he lost it behind the glare of the sun in the middle of February, he realized this was no comet, that it was on a nearly circular arc, given the data that he had, and that it had an orbit of about 2.8 astronomical units right at the gap and position predicted by the Titius-Bode law. He immediately announced this thing as the discovery of a new planet. He named it Ceres Ferdinandea, Ferdinandea being after the King Ferdinand, his patron. Wiser heads again prevailed and failed to put the crowned name of a king of Europe into the sky, and it became known simply as Ceres, one of the goddesses of, basically it's one of the goddesses of the harvest and the principal goddess of Sicily from Roman times. Well, von Sach, who knew he had been scooped, instead of being upset about this, swung the celestial police into motion and set about predicting where Ceres should appear from behind the sun and see if, in fact, it was at that position. And if, sure enough, in the year 1802, early in the year 1802, von Sach and one of the celestial police, a man by the name of Olbers, recovered independently Ceres exactly where it was predicted. They found that the orbit was in fact slightly elliptical, and it was tilted somewhat with respect to the plane of the ecliptic, but there it was, a new planet. And there it was called a new planet immediately upon its discovery. While searching and studying Ceres, in 18, later in 1802, Heinrich Wilhelm Matthäus Olbers found a second object in that same orbit, 2.77 astronomical units in the vicinity of Ceres. It was, originally, it was immediately dubbed Pallas. It was dubbed yet another planet in the sky. It was the second of these objects we now recognize as the asteroids. Which brings now the scientific community to the question, 
in the year 1802. So how do these two brand new objects, Pallas and Ceres, fit in among the family of the known planets? Now there are seven planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and Uranus. And two new planets bringing the count to nine, Ceres and Pallas. Well, no less a figure than the elder William Herschel entered into the argument in a letter to the Royal Transactions of the Royal Society of London in 1802 on the discovery of these two brand new worlds. He noted in his own observations that when he looked at them through the telescope, unlike all the other planets, they looked like little twinkling stars rather than the disk of a planet, like all everything else looks like in, in, in the solar system. But they weren't fuzzy like comets. They followed nearly circular, roughly elliptical orbits, which were tilted with respect to the plane. So their orbits were slightly different. They were much smaller than the other planets. And because they looked star-like in his telescope, he preferred that maybe we should call them asteroids, meaning star-like objects. He slightly rejected the idea that these really should be put on the same level as the other large planets of the solar system. And his reasoning was very interesting. He cited their very small size. They were much smaller than the other planets. That their orbits were more elliptical and more tilted relative to the ecliptic than the other planets, which were almost all on nearly circular or only slightly elliptical orbits, but all within a few degrees of the plane of the ecliptic. And the curious fact that Ceres and Pallas shared the same orbit. And in fact, over time, it would be known to actually have crossed each other's orbits in various ways. They actually did some funny little exchange bits going on. So it's, I reread this paper this summer. I came across it because my wife, who's also an astronomer, was writing an article for Stardate magazine on what is a planet. Everyone was really caught up in this this summer. And she, found, she actually dug out of an online reference, which I've left the link to in your notes, to Herschel's original article. If you get a chance, go read it. It's, it's not as technical as you might think, because after all, it's written in 1802. But it lays out a lot of the basic issues that were being argued at that moment in Prague had been anticipated more than two centuries before by William Herschel, not on the subject of Pluto and the outer solar system, but on the subject of the asteroids. Well, by 1807, Ceres and Pallas were joined by two more asteroids, Juno by, by, by Carl Harding in 1804, and Vesta, a twofer, discovered by Olbers in 1807. So now there were four additional planets. Not everyone took the word asteroid seriously from Herschel. And people contended that now, in fact, John Herschel, who was the son of William Herschel, who was an astronomer in his own right, wrote a textbook in which he claimed in 1838 there were 11 planets in the solar system. The seven planets that we already know, the big ones, plus the four smaller planets, Ceres, Pallas, Juno, and Vesta. Curiously, by 18, between 1807 and the discovery of the fifth asteroid, Astraea, 38 years was to elapse. And the reason being is that these are, in fact, the four largest of the asteroids. They contain nearly half the mass of the entire main belt of millions upon millions of asteroids. The jump in size from Vesta to Astraea is big, and it became harder and harder to find these things. But in that 38 years, there were some changes. <coughs> One of the biggest changes in that period was the discovery of Neptune. Actually, it's the prediction and discovery of Neptune. Neptune was not found by accident. It was found on purpose. Neptune was discovered because it was noticed that the orbit of Uranus deviated from the track that you would have predicted with a strict Newtonian calculation that took into account the gravitational influence of all the other planets upon each other in addition to the gravity of the sun. It was a very difficult calculation, but Uranus was deviating from that position. 
And so it was realized by a couple of people, in particular Urbain Le Verrier in France and John Couch Adams in the UK, that the way to explain that was to say, what if there is an additional eighth planet, very mass, or a planet very massive of comparable mass to Uranus, in an orbit beyond that of Uranus? Then its gravity would be adding into the equations. Since we're not including it, we're miscalculating the orbit. Where would such a planet have to be, and how big would it have to be to erase the discrepancy between the observations and the theory? Here we see modern science in action. Theoretical framework, Newtonian physics for explaining the motions, a set of observations, a discrepancy between the two. Can we explain that discrepancy with a self-consistent use of Newtonian principles without inventing new, new physics or new mathematics? There's no number theory in here. There's no Titius Bode law at work at all in this search. Urban Le Verrier convinced the Berlin Observatory to look at the predicted position of this object. A young astronomer named Johann Gala turned his telescope to the sky and on the 23rd of September 1846 found the planet Neptune where Le Verrier predicted it should be. It was an absolutely electrifying discovery in 1846 because here was Newtonian physics being used to predict the existence of a new planet that no one had suspected before. It proved indisputably the power of the Newtonian view of the world. Also, the position of Neptune absolutely does not fit the progression of the Titius-Bode law. And one can mark the point at which the Titius-Bode law begins to disappear from all but historical textbooks from the year 1846, because people realized it was just a number game with no physics. Physics made the prediction. If you tried to use the Titius-Bode law, you would have found absolutely nothing at that position. It has no predictive power. It was purely an accident that something was found in the space between Mars and Jupiter. Sometimes it works like that. We get so seduced by the beauty of our mathematical progressions, we stop to ask, is there any reason why that progression should exist? But its apparent success blinded people to the fact there was nothing behind it. Anyway, the discovery of Neptune was one factor that led to the eventual reclassification of Ceres, Pallas, Juno, and Vesta as so-called minor planets. A little bit of chronology here I'm just going to basically skip over because we've actually seen this slide before. Basically, what people began to realize was that when we discovered Neptune, realized that the asteroids really were tiny. Furthermore, within a few years, many hundreds had begun to show up in the space between Mars and Jupiter. And people began to realize, you know, these things are tiny and they're actually part of families of objects. Maybe Herschel, William Herschel, had it right. These really are a separate class of objects. And without virtually any controversy, the whole question of what these objects were, they were just simply reclassified into asteroids and people stopped calling them planets. By about 1865, even John Herschel had stopped calling them planets. He talked about at one point about there being 50 planets in the solar system, the big eight, and all the little stuff. And after that, no one talked about it anymore. So here are the biggest objects in the asteroid belt compared to the moon. They really stood out as different. They really stood out as different. But that still didn't stop people from wondering if there wasn't more to the solar system than we knew. In particular, Percival Lowell was a wealthy astronomer who built his own observatory in Flagstaff. He studied the Martian canals. He began his own assessment of the motion of the orbit of Neptune. He thought there was, a, there, was a, there was a discrepant wobble in its orbit. It basically was not where it should be by prediction. And so he predicted there should be a ninth planet, massive planet, beyond Neptune 
whose gravity is influencing Neptune and therefore causing the discrepancy between the calculation with the known solar system and what is actually observed. Of course, what we're seeing here is this idea that, well, it worked for, for Uranus to find Neptune. Maybe we can use that same trick again to find yet more planets. And so Lowell himself, in the year 1909, began a search for planet X, X for unknown. He did search in 1909 and then interrupted it for a while from 1913 to 1916. Lowell's a real American original. He's a member of one of the most wealthy families of, of Boston, the Lowell's. Um, he used his fortune to build a private observatory. He was obsessed by Martian canals, which in fact was an optical illusion. Basically, the eye has a bunch of blood vessels in the back of it, and when you look at a bright source out of focus, you form an out-of-focus image of the back of your eye projected on the sky. And so what he was actually seeing was probably the veins on the back of his eye because of the way the optics worked. That's one modern explanation for it. The other possibility is he just saw what he wanted to see. Um, either way, he was a very, very good astronomer, and he realized that while naked eye observation was good, photography was the way to go. And so he helped develop an early camera called an astrograph and began systematically photographing the sky. In fact, without recognizing it, he was looking for a big planet. He actually photographed Pluto twice and never recognized it as a moving object in the outer solar system. Either he was looking for something bigger and just overlooked it, or maybe as he was getting older, he was just getting sloppy. Or maybe he never even had time to look at the plates. We don't know the answer. All we know is that when we went back later and looked through the plates, people found it there. When Lowell died in 1916, more than 22 years was to intervene while the heirs of his estate argued over who should get the money, the Lowell Trust, who ran the observatory, or various family members who always come out of the work. Lowell had a lot of bucks. And so luckily, luckily for science, the Lowell Foundation, the Lowell Trust, won, and the Lowell Observatory was allowed to remain. The Lowell Observatory remains to this day in Flagstaff. If you ever get out to Flagstaff, Arizona, you really should go visit. It does have a nice public museum. It is one of the oldest private observatories in the United States and is still a center of research into the planetaries, into the solar system, as well as into extrasolar planetary systems now and other astronomy. It's a wonderful place. Ohio State used to be partners in operating a telescope with Lowell for many years, and I have many good friends still there. Well, of course, the search went on. A young amateur astronomer named Clyde Tombaugh from Missouri, who had never been to college, but he was a very good astronomer, and was very well trained and trainable, was given the task of using Lowell's astrograph to, to resume Lowell's search of the ecliptic plane, searching for this fourth planet, this, this ninth planet beyond Neptune. On the 18th of February, 1930, when he was examining photographic plates taken a few weeks before in January of 1930, he found a tiny moving object. Between January 23rd and six days later on January 29th, this tiny object here moved from here up between these two bright stars to this position here. You can see that it was literally a needle in a haystack. But what he found with a few more observations, the arc of the orbit showed that it was in fact beyond the orbit of Neptune and it was immediately hailed as a brand new planet. In fact, it was the ninth planet that Lowell was seeking, and it was immediately named Pluto. Oh, okay. It was named for the god of the underworld, even though Disney's Pluto was around, well, yeah, maybe later than 1930. But no one really questioned that it was a planet right away until subsequent observations began to generate a bit of controversy. One was, if, if Lowell's original calculations of the perturbations, the, the discrepancy of Neptune from its computed orbit were correct, 
this object in the orbit of Pluto would have to have a lot more mass than it does to have enough gravity to tweak something as big as Neptune, which is 17 times the mass of the Earth. This Pluto thing was way too small. It was maybe about the size of the Earth, people thought at that time, but it was not big enough. Also, the orbit wasn't in the ecliptic. It was tilted by 17 degrees with respect to the ecliptic, and it was extremely elliptical. Uh, not extremely elliptical. It was very elliptical, 0.25 eccentricity. So it didn't fit the regular pattern of nearly circular or just slightly out of round orbits all in the ecliptic plane within a few degrees. It was tilted wildly up. In fact, it was so elliptical it crossed the orbit of Neptune. But the problem was Pluto, as it was named, was the only such object of any brightness out there that anyone knew of. Subsequent searches for more trans-Neptunian planets, as they became known, undertaken by Clyde Tombaugh at Lowell and others, failed to turn up any other Pluto-like objects, any other big planets. Okay, they were willing to admit, maybe Pluto's not the planet responsible for the, for the discrepancy motions of Neptune. We'll go looking, maybe we just found it by accident, we'll find something that is. In 20, 30 years of searching, nothing turned up. Absolutely nothing turned up. So because it was unique, Rather than inventing a new classification, Pluto was declared and remained a planet. But as time went on, people realized that Pluto wasn't as big as the Earth. In fact, it's barely bigger than the United States. That it just doesn't fit, but they didn't know what to do with it. Well, the search for trans-Neptunian objects took 60 years between the discovery of Pluto and the discovery of the second trans-Neptunian object, the wonderfully named 1991 QB1 it was discovered by David Jewett and Jan Liu of the University of Hawaii using a brand new technology, not photography, because these things are too faint for photography, but using modern electronic cameras. Once the trick was figured out, our knowledge of the trans-Neptunian world exploded extre extremely fast. We've all seen this plot before. There are now more than 1,200 trans-Neptunian objects known only 14 years after the discovery of the first one. That's 1,214 years after nothing in 62 years. That's how much the new technology has enabled the search. We've got enough to be able to start seeing that there are actually families of these objects. We've seen this picture before. The Kuiper belt, bounded between the 3 to, three to 2 and 2 to 1 resonances of Neptune. The scattered disk, which are objects which were kicked into those scattered orbits by the gravity of Neptune. So Neptune is determining the orbits not only of the resonant objects, it's confining the Kuiper belt, and it's also kicking the objects out into the scattered belt. So a dynamical family of thousands of objects, icy bodies of the outer solar system, all orbiting beyond the orbit of Neptune, shown as that second green dot there on this plot we saw from the other day. All of these dominated by the orbit of Neptune. Where was Pluto? Pluto's right here the biggest of the three to two resonant objects. This is why people began in 1992 to pick up this question, does Pluto really fit in the solar system? Is it the smallest, weirdest planet, or is it the largest of the resonant family of the Kuiper Belt? Is it simply just there because we saw it first because it was the biggest and the easiest to see with photographic techniques? Had we discovered Pluto in 1960, rather than 1930 or 1970 or 1980, would we have declared it was a planet, knowing now what we did not know in 1930? That's a difficult question, what ifs are, are difficult to ask. 
But the whole question got kicked open and was no longer an academic question in January, in August of 2005. Using data taken from Palomar in January of 2005, Mike Brown, Chad Trujillo, and David Rabinowitz reported the existence of an object provisionally de designated 2003 UB313 that was bigger than Pluto. It was the second shiniest object in the solar system, had an orbit 67 AUs out with a period of 560 years, tilted 45 degrees with respect to the ecliptic and very, very elliptical. Spectrum showed it was Pluto-like in composition. In fact, it was almost a twin sister of Pluto and had one moon. Pluto at the time was known to have one moon. So everything shows it to be Pluto-like, and yet it was given a minor planet designation. Shouldn't it this not be the tenth planet? Well, now we suddenly found ourselves with a quandary. How do you name this object, for example? Do we apply the minor planet center naming convention, or do we apply the solar system naming convention? Which committee of the IAU gets the request? That's a silly question. The real question scientifically was, is our definition of what is or is not a planet robust enough to handle the case of this object? And predictions were there should be five to ten more objects like this still in the trans-Neptunian realm. We haven't surveyed the whole place. So how do we handle this question? People realize that after three millennia of studying the planets, we still did not have a self-consistent definition of what was a planet. Wandering star no longer worked because if you used objects that moved relative to the fixed stars, there were billions of planets by that definition. We needed a better scientific definition. Now, the group's code name for this object, they love to give code names to their various objects they found. The Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, Rudolph, they named this one Xena. Yeah, that's Xena. Here's the orbit of this object. Very large elliptical orbit, very highly tilted with respect to the plane of the ecliptic. Here's Pluto, and I've drawn Ceres as well. And here's the plane of the ecliptic. All these objects stand out. Elliptical orbits, big tilts, small sizes. So what is a planet? Part two. This is the same question that Herschel picked up in 1802, but now is picked up in 2005 by the International Astronomical Union, who reestablished a commission which had earlier considered the problem before the discovery of 2003 UB313, but it deadlocked and never come to any conclusion and kind of just went away. Now, the problem could not be ignored. The question was being forced by the discovery of this object larger than Pluto, and people wanted to know, how are we going to classify it? So the IAU reestablished the commission in, in the end of 2005, charged them with coming up with an answer in late 2005. They said that they couldn't do it, but they were going to defer their discussions to the IAU General Assembly meeting in August of 2006 in Prague. At that meeting, the discussion was very, very contentious. I won't repeat the history of the discussions that went back and forth. We'll just go straight to the bottom line. They came up with a criteria for what is a planet. The first criterion is that it must orbit around the sun and not be a satellite of another planet. So, for example, the moon technically orbits the sun, but it's obviously a satellite of the Earth, and therefore the moon is not a planet. It's a moon. It must be shaped by gravity. The gravity must be sufficiently large to overcome the rigid body forces to shape it into a sphere. It achieves a spheroidal shape due to hydrostatic equilibrium. In practice, this means it will be on order of 800 kilometers in diameter and larger. 
Where that line is depends upon whether you're made of ice and rock, whether you're solid or porous and so forth. Turns out ice and rock have similar mechanical strengths, so it's about the same for an icy body as it is for a, for a rocky body in round numbers. Also, they should, not, they should have, to be a planet, should have cleared their orbital neighborhoods to be a planet. Okay, I got a word not there. Ignore the word not. They should have cleared their orbital neighborhoods or orbital dominance. This is the controversial point. The controversial point is because of the way they worded it. Now, if you satisfy one and two, but you do not have orbital dominance in your orbital zone, then you are not a planet, but instead a dwarf planet. By this definition, the IAU Commission in August decided there were three dwarf planets, Ceres, Pluto, and 2003 UB313, which has since been given a formal name, Eris. And there are about a dozen candidates. Most of these are large trans-Neptunian objects, which are plausibly spherical, but for yet the data are still insufficient to show this. So if you want to be a planet, you have to meet all three criteria. The Earth is a planet because it's cleared its neighborhood, more or less, or rather it has orbital dominance in its neighborhood. It orbits the sun, and of course it's a roughly spherical shape due to gravity. Ceres shares an orbit with Pallas, so it does not have orbital dominance. Well, Eris was given, 2003 UB313 was given the official name of Eris. Eris is the goddess of discord. Seems rather appropriate given how rancorous the discussions were at the August IAU meeting. I, I uh, sent an email to Mike Brown, who I'd been in co communication with for other reasons uh, for the last year or so. Shortly after he did this, saying, I thought, first of all, his choice of name of Eris was, was absolutely brilliant because it captured the mood of the rather so controversial discussion by picking the goddess of discord, who was the goddess who threw the apple into the wedding feast that led to the beginning of the Trojan War. So I thought, you know, that's pretty good. But I really liked his choice, their, the team's choice of the name for the moon, Dysnomia. Dysnomia is one of the daughters of discord. Uh, this is the spirit of lawlessness. Remember the Xena picture, the actress who played Xena in Xena's Warrior Princess is Lucy Lawless. So they've managed to embed a pop culture pun into the nomenclature of the solar system. These guys are brilliant. Um, and, he, and when I said that, he said, yeah, you caught us. <laughs> um, now the official names of these planets, however, now includes this six-digit number, which is a minor planet center number. So the minor planet center immediately jumped and redesignated Pluto as 134340 Pluto to acknowledge its existence as not a planet, it's a dwarf planet. And these are, in fact, the current three dwarf planets, Pluto, Eris, Ceres, compared to the size of the Moon and the Earth. Now, this dominance in orbit rule is the one rule, one orbit, per, one planet per orbit. Anything near the Earth has had its orbital evolution influenced by the Earth's effects, and basically the neighborhood is more or less cleared of large objects. Ceres and Pallas share an orbit, so neither is said to dominate its orbit gravity, gravitationally, and Pluto has not cleared its orbit either. It basically shares a very large family of resonant objects that are put into that position by the gravity of Neptune. Pluto did not determine its orbital destiny. Well, let's actually turn to this plot. We've seen this plot before. I've been showing this over and over again. Here's the solar system, mass on the x-axis, position in the solar system on the, on the x-axis, mass on the y-axis. The asteroids lie here in a band resonantly confined between the 2 to 1 and 4 to 1 resonances with the planet Jupiter. The Kuiper belt is confined to the 3 to 2 and 2 to 1 resonances, so far as we know, by the gravity of Neptune. 
Here are Ceres, Pluto, and Eris, the largest members of this class. Centaurs and scattered disk objects out here. This criteria of can have dominated its orbit, if the object is in the gray shaded region on this plot, its gravity would have perturbed any small objects out of here by the current day within 10 billion years of existence. Even given 10 billion years, even given the lifetime of the universe, Pluto and Eris will not have time to clear their orbits. So they clearly stand out as different objects. So the dwarf planets are a dynamically different, dynamically distinct group of objects. And this is why Pluto is not a planet. It's a dwarf planet. Any questions? Okay, well, I will see you all tomorrow then.